According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew 25, once again. Matthew 25. We got a good jump on this last week, I thought. In a lot of ways, Matthew 24 and 25 go together. It is one long discourse. The Mount Olivet Discourse, as it's commonly referred to. 51 verses in uh, chapter 24 and 46 verses in chapter 25. uh, Almost all of which is red, if you have a red letter edition of your Bible. All right. In the Harmony of the Gospels that we're following, it is broken down into two different episodes. Episode 12 is the Matthew 24 material. And episode 13 is the uh, Matthew 25 material. And, uh, and I understand why they did that. Um, Matthew 24 has parallels in Mark and Luke. Um, Matthew 25 does not have direct parallels in Mark and Luke. There are some similar passages elsewhere. We'll see one today from Luke. Um, but, and, and we'll talk about that as we get that far. All right, Matthew 25. The kingdom of heaven will be com- comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, and took no, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. And while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then uh, all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. I think that's a total lie. They never even took oil in the first place. They had no oil at the very beginning. So the idea that ours are going out is, uh, is actually a falsehood. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. Yet at midnight, there's a lot of oil dealers that are open. You know, and <laughs> probably had, you know, a Walgreens on the corner or something. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. All right, this is what we got started on a week ago. I want to get right back to it again here today. Oh, I've got to get my notes out still. All right, let's open in prayer, and then we'll get right to our study. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege we have to assemble together. We thank you for this Wednesday morning class, Father. It is a, it is a blessed time and we appreciate uh, the 380, however many hours it's been here in Life of Christ. We continue to appreciate the example our Savior set, the depths of, uh, of teaching that he provided. Uh, this is his uh, final night before uh, he returns uh, in for his last supper. So this is getting very close to the cross and... Uh, we just appreciate the, the depth of teaching that he provided his disciples and that he provides for each one of us. Father, help us to study to show ourselves approved. Help us to set aside distractions. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let me get my notes out. I was so busy trying to figure out why internet wasn't working. I didn't, uh, didn't get my mouse out, didn't get my notes out. There we are. Parables and virgins. 
talents. The day of judgment. The day of judgment is, of course, sheep and goats. So we, today we're going to cover virgins, talents, sheep, sheep and goats. We'll see how far we get with it. All right. The parable of the ten virgins expands upon the imperative to be on the alert. We had it back in chapter 24 and verse 42. It gets expanded here. It's going to get expanded again as well in the uh, parable of the talents. And the parable of the ten virgins expands upon the imperative to be on the alert. The imperative is gregoreo, and we are expected to be on the alert. You and I in the church age are expected to be on the alert. So although we don't have the direct application to be made here, this is for Israel, this is tribulational. Uh, it is tribulational uh, saints that have to be on the alert. We still glean from this passage and bring our own application into it because uh, as church age believers, we have uh, alert imperatives an imminent expectation of the rapture, for example. So because we're under a, an application of imminency, passages like this uh, clearly speak to us. Kingdom of heaven uh, comparisons are made 11 times in Matthew, or 12, depending on how you count certain things. In Matthew 13, you have seven, uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 of them. And you also have Matthew 18:23, Matthew 20 and verse 1, Matthew 22:2, Matthew 25:1. That's 11 uses where the kingdom of heaven is compared to something. Um, I believe you can find a 12th one. You can find the 12th one, depending on how you read Matthew 13. You can view the first parable, the parable of the sower, as a uh, comparison, or you can view this, uh, the, the one we're going to look at in the parable of the talents. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey. It's a bit abbreviated. You don't have the term may be compared to, but you do have the just as. You have the just like. Slightly different language. And uh, it could be thought of as the 12th kingdom of heaven comparison. I think it's a valid kingdom of heaven comparison to draw. All right. But this one is about 10 virgins. 10 virgins take their lamps to meet the bridegroom. Now, intrinsically... Where I think a lot of a lot of uh, commentaries really spend a lot of time trying to break this down in ways that I think aren't fair to do. Remember what we do with a with a parable. With a parable, a parable makes one main point, and to try to get overly detailed on five foolish virgins and five wise virgins, and and uh, let's just recognize they're all virgins, and they're described together more often than they're described apart. Ten virgins took their lamps. Every virgin has a lamp. All right. And so there's nothing intrinsically different about the virgins. They're all virgins. They all have lamps. They're all expected to shine their light. They're all expected to make preparations to do that. It's just that five of them were foolish and five of them were prudent. All right. Now we gave you a lot of the vocabulary last week. We won't go back over that. Point C, the contrast in this parable is foolish versus prudent. Foolish versus prudent. And uh, so, in a lot of ways, this parable becomes our own, uh, you know, book of Proverbs, right? The contrast throughout the book of Proverbs, chapter by chapter, what the Lord is describing here. And ultimately, the responsibility for whether you're foolish or whether you're prudent, who does that rest with? It rests with you. What do you do to embrace wisdom? What do you do to forsake wisdom? And uh, if you are a fool, whose fault is that? 
Is there provision for you to grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Is there provision that's made for you to, uh, to grow beyond that point? Now, we all start as fools, of course. But the best news is, is that we identify in our, in our immaturity that we are fools and we start growing. And we grow out of that and we acquire wisdom and, uh, and so forth. Now, the moros versus the phronimos. And this is where we ran out of time, talking about the, uh, the need for this discernment, the need for this. This is not Sophia wisdom. This is phronimos. This is understanding. I think this is, um, uh, we're told to acquire wisdom and with your wisdom to get understanding, right? So we understand, even the book of Proverbs makes the distinction that wisdom itself um, can let you down when you don't have the understanding to put that wisdom to use. When you don't have the, uh, wi- the, uh, the ability to take your wisdom and use it on a practical basis in very specific ways. And so uh, this is where you want to add your understanding to your wisdom. This is where you want to add your phronimos. So uh, the term here is phronimos for the prudent. And I like the translation prudent. To me, prudent does a lot more. Uh, in uh, rather than just simply wise. It's not Sophia wisdom here. It's not Sophos wise. It's Phronimos prudent. Okay? And so prudent is very uh, specific, but prudent is also very targeted. I might, have, I might be prudent in one application and completely imprudent in another application. You see how that works? We need to, we need to learn to develop prudence in every testing circumstance that we are uh, assigned, including the imminency aspect of watchfulness. So, uh, 14 New Testament uses of phronimos, including uh, Matthew 7.24, Matthew 10.16, uh, Matthew 24.45, which we had just, uh, uh, where it was translated sensible. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave? We saw that not too long ago in uh, the previous episode. And uh, four times in this, in this passage, Matthew 25, verses 2, 4, 8, and 9. It's used in Luke 12, 42, Luke 16, 8, Romans 11, 25, Romans 12, 16, 1 Corinthians 4, 10, 1 Corinthians 10, 15, and 2 Corinthians 11, 19. Now, I did not jot my little markdown I usually do when we finished a class last time. Did we look at any of those verses last time? Or did we not look at any of them? I don't think we looked at any of them. Okay. I normally make a little tick mark in my note where we left off. Well then, let's not spend a whole lot of time on this, but let's, let's at least get a sense for it, starting in Matthew 7, 24. Again, it's, we can understand the idea that it is an issue of wisdom, but it's a precise application of wisdom that, uh, whereby sensibility and prudence is, uh, is our better translation. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a, not a wise man, not a Sophia, Sophos, but a Phronimos, a prudent man who builds his house on a rock. You can acquire wisdom and you can know that building a a house on a rock is foolishness, but you do it anyway. So what good is your wisdom at that point? You've not added the, the understanding or the prudence to that wisdom. And so there's the use of it there. And then the fool, of course, comes along. We have the fool in verse 26. 
the moros, the moron, which I know we looked at last week, um, hears these words of mine and does not act on them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. See, now realize he heard the words and he understood the words. He just chose to act in a manner contrary to the word of God. You know, you're not a fool just based on immaturity or ignorance. That's a different issue. <laughs> we can fix that. Yeah, ignorance can be remedied. We can teach content. But the volitional choice to act in defiance of what you've been taught, that's moronic. That's the moros. And, and if you insist on that, well, you're going to reap what you sow. It's unfortunate, but that's, that's just the way it works. That's the nature of the Christian way of life. And so you see it there. All right, Matthew chapter 10 and verse 16, another application of Phronimos. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be Phronimos, shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Again, you'll notice this isn't just a generic wisdom. I think Sophia, Sophos, these terms for wisdom are more general terms, whereas Phronimos is more specific. It's more targeted. You can think of it maybe as a subset of wisdom, but it's not really a subset. It's really it's, it's a step beyond. It's, it's taking hold of wisdom and using it in a smart way. So shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. And, uh, and that may be the best way to describe the whole overall sense of Phronimos. Uh, not just using wisdom, but using it in an effective way, the best way, a way that glorifies Christ, a way that achieves what the Father would have for you to achieve. And so we see it there. Matthew 24, 45, we just looked at well, uh, the faithful and sensible steward whom the Father has, whom the Lord has put in charge. Matthew 25 is our text. Over to Luke 12. Luke 12. That's the parallel to Matthew 24. No need to look at that. Luke 16, 8. And this one we struggled with a little bit. Remember, we, we spent a bit of time on this in class. The unjust steward. And uh, he uh, was a manager, and it was reported to him that he was squandering his possessions. Uh-oh, manager's in trouble. <laughs> because when you're a manager, you don't own those resources that you're managing. And if the owner of those resources you're managing finds out how faithless you are, you're in trouble. Required of stewards that you be found faithful. And uh, now the manager's in trouble because he's on the verge of being fired here and he knows he's not strong enough to dig and he's ashamed to beg. If he loses this job, what else is there? Okay. <laughs> Almost like I woke up crying a month ago when I had a nightmare that I uh, uh, couldn't be a pastor anymore. And I don't know why the dream wasn't really that specific. Uh, but for whatever reason, I got, I got canned. I wasn't the pastor here anymore. And, um, and I thought, if I'm a camp pastor, why am I even here? Why am I even on earth? And uh, that's what the steward's trying to figure out. There's nothing else he can do. And so he starts to summon the debtors, and he starts to cut deals with them. And he actually starts to liquidate certain things, and he starts to resolve certain things. And he actually gets praised for this. When he cuts it down, he gives him a 50% fire sale right here, right now, if you settle today. 
and, and they're jumping at it. They're jumping at it. And maybe, you know, long term, the, the master might say, you know, I'm losing money on this long term, but maybe he's not. Maybe actually it's better for the master to get what he can now up front and do something else with it. And he seems to be appreciative of that. At some point you realize where you've got to cut your losses and where uh, losses aren't actually losses compared to alternatives. Anyway, uh, the praise that comes in here in verse 8, his master praised the unrighteous manager. And clearly he's not saved. The terms here don't you know, allow for that. He is unrighteous. Because he acted phronimos. I think it's the adverb phronimos there. Anyway, he acted uh, with phronimos. Shrewd, sensibility, discernment, prudence. For the sons of this age are more prudent in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. Than the sons of light. Let's face it. Um, we're going to... We're not going to relate in some respects to some of the business dealings in the world we live in because that's not our nature anymore. We are aliens and strangers. We have a, a way of thinking now that's being molded after the image of Christ and it is not going to be clicking with a lot of things this world is going to be doing. And, uh, you know, that's just the way it is. Acknowledge it for what it is and thank the Father for it. It's part of being harmless as a dove while we strive to be shrewd as serpents. All right. Anyway, if you want more on that, you can uh, review that particular class. The, the uh, Pauline examples here, Romans 11:25 and 12:16. Remember this portion of Romans when you're in 9, 10, and 11. You're dealing with uh, God's purpose for Israel. He's not done with them. He will resume His purpose for Israel when the church is complete. He says, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. So you will not be uh, phronimos in your own estimation. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Next chapter, chapter 12 and verse 16. Be of the same mind toward one another. And, and I love Romans 12 because Romans 12 is the Magna Carta of the, uh, of the church age. Romans 12 is the church constitution for the local church. Romans 12 shows you how a corporate body, a body of believers that are individuals, can come together with a harmonious way that glorifies Christ. And uh, it's really the whole chapter with the gifts and ministries in 3 through 8 and then the the way it all comes together in 9 and following. But, since it's not my purpose to teach this chapter today, let's just look at verse 16. <laughs> be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind. Now, this is actually a compound with the, the frame part. Okay? Do I still have my logos up and running? I don't. Uh, anyway, there's, there's a play on words here, and we're not to overthink or not to be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. In other words, you want to be sober-minded. You want to have the discernment that, uh, that appropriately evaluates what you are and who you are. What you are is by the grace of God. And who you are is what He's making you to be. And you're not who you used to be and you're not who you're going to be. Okay, you're still, He's still working in you. He's still molding you. 
And that's, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a blessing in that. I don't know who originally coined that. I, I heard Chuck Swindoll, but I think he probably stole it from somebody else before him. And I also heard, uh, um, who's the guy out of Atlanta? I heard him use that. Charles Stanley. Right. So now I'm, I'm kind of, I don't know if, if Stanley stole from Swindoll or Swindoll stole from Stanley, or maybe they both stole from somebody else. But uh, there it is. And it's very true. I mean, if it's good, use it. Because <laughs> too many believers get, get discouraged. They get disappointed that they're not more mature than they think they ought to be. You know, or they're not where they want to be. So you know, you'll get there. God's getting you there. Just be faithful. Be patient. A little bit here, a little bit there. And uh, yes, you're not what you're going to be. But thank God you're not what you used to be. And, uh, and keep growing in that. Keep growing in that. Be encouraged. All right. And the last believer that told me they were failing every test they were facing, I said, no, you're passing more than you're failing. And besides, even the ones you're failing, you couldn't, uh, God wouldn't even have tested you with this a year ago. So be thankful that he's testing you with it so that you can fail this year and maybe pass it next year. And last year, you weren't even tested with it. So it's a mark. You're growing. You're growing. Be encouraged. All right. So that's Romans 12:16. In 1 Corinthians, it's 4:10 and 10:15. And then in 2 Corinthians, it's 11.19. All of these are uses of phronimos. I think, again, you're noticing in all of these, it's, it's not really wisdom in general, but it's a very targeted, specific wisdom application. You are, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. It's unfortunate. In that one, it's, it's very much tongue-in-cheek. Paul is using um, a, a, uh, an absolute sarcasm mode in this to really rebuke the Corinthians. That, uh, you know, Paul and his team are suffering in a martyrdom Christianity, and Corinth is already in a millennial Christianity, and boy, wouldn't it be great to be them. And uh, there's a lot of sarcasm there. 1 Corinthians 10.15 I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. I speak as to phronimos, prudent men. Now this is in a very specific, targeted realm, dealing with temptation, dealing with uh, being able to utilize what God's provided to endure. It's a very targeted application, not just wise in general. Prudent, prudent, sensible, shrewd, able to make discernment uh, decisions and discernment for yourself. And then finally, 2 Corinthians 11.19, the last use of phronimos. Hmm. And again, there's a bit of tongue-in-cheek here. There's a bit of, uh, of, uh, of this. For you being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. And uh, we're going to talk about that, talking about who they put up with. You tolerate it if anyone enslaves you and, and devours you and takes advantage of you and exalts himself. Anyone who hits you in the face. You know, and today this has happened. The things believers put up with, the ministries they put up with, the mistreatment they go through. Are you kidding me? I'd be out of that door so fast, you know, man. But they put up with it. They love it. Systems of, uh, of uh, all kinds of things. Hmm. And he says, to my shame, I must say that we've been weak by comparison. We never abused you. <laughs> you know, man, we never charged you top dollar for any, any of the speaking engagements. 
and uh, we, uh, we didn't charge you, and the Macedonian churches supported us. We could minister to you free of charge, Paul was telling them. And it's, uh, it's pretty interesting the things that people will put up with. And uh, we'll have to deal with that in some length when we get over there to, the, to that chapter. All right. So the contrast is the wise with the prudent. Now understand, this is not just theory. This is not just academic. This is not just somebody who knows his Bible inside and out. But he knows what to do, and he does it. He does it. Okay. Each virgin was, ex- point D, each virgin was expected to produce light, but only the wise virgins possessed the fuel needed to produce light. Only the wise virgins possessed the fuel needed to produce light. And that's the point being made here. The point being made here. Each virgin was expected to produce light, but only the wise virgins possessed the fuel needed to produce light. There's the contrast. And five were wise, five were prudent, were foolish. And yet all were under that expectation. Only five were able to measure up to what was expected of them. Five are going to have the blessings because they achieved that which they were designed to do. And five were not. And they're going to be excluded. They are excluded for all eternity. To me, um, this we can approach this on a lot of different levels. Uh, thinking about... Um, Believers who go to a hyper-sovereignty, Calvinist-type extreme where God just does everything. Every choice, everything, every deed. Every, we just kind of, we're robots and whatever He does, we watch Him do. Well, He gave them all lamps, but did He give them all oil? No, we're told that half of them didn't have oil. How did the other half have oil? doesn't say how they have oil. It just says that they do. And when they rebuke the others for not having oil, they say, go and purchase. And I find that to be interesting as well. Obviously, this was a purchase they have already made themselves previously. For the five of them, why didn't the other five? What were they doing? It's always remarkable when uh, believers decide that they've got priorities other than that which will make provision for what it is that they're expected to do. Okay. What are we expected to do in our dispensation? Are we expected to produce light? Yeah. So this, this isn't a parable that addresses us, but I think it does when we, when we, you know, on a secondary basis, when we see where our parallels are, I'm expected to shine light. I'm, I'm a child of light. God uh, shines through me, manifests through me. All right. So can I make application here? Of course. And I look at this and I say, all right, every virgin has a lamp. But not every virgin has the oil. And, uh, you know, (laughs) do they just expect that that God's going to send angels to fill it with oil or that he's going to trim the wicks for him? He's going to light it for him, you know? At what point does God equip us and then expect us to prepare to use that equipment to train? See, do I just wake up one day and say, wow, I received a spiritual gift of pastor teacher and I just start candidating in in pulpits? Or do I expect, wait a minute, I I need to accumulate some oil. 
I need to learn how to uh, I need to learn how to trim this wick. I need to learn how to light this lamp. I need to train and prepare and 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 just not assume that well because I have a lamp I can just start doing something. Okay, so there's a balance between what God provides sovereignly and what He expects us to do volitionally. And if we are fools and don't act upon what He's made available. We're stuck out. That's where they are, stuck out. And um, another thought, you know, what if there is no Walgreens open at midnight? Where are they going to purchase? Go instead to the dealers, to the dealers. I suspect that's going to be the next morning. You know, unless they're those other parables of banging on the door, banging on the door after the, the people are already in bed for the night. Because um, by the time they get there, it says later, they come, they come and they've obtained. And, and you know, it's interesting. Does it say in here anywhere that they were successful in making that purchase? I don't think they were. They were going away to make the purchase, but it's midnight. Where are they going to get the oil? The bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast. The door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came. Now, it doesn't say how long, how much later. Is it the next morning? Is it later that night? Is it still dark? Were they successful in obtaining the oil? Nothing here says they were. Lord, Lord, open for us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. All right. So each virgin expected to produce light, but only the wise virgins possessed the fuel needed to produce light. So think about this in your own application. What do we what does God expect us to do and are we preparing for doing that? God expects us to we have this ministry of reconciliation that's been entrusted to us. We are expected to on behalf of Christ beg others to be reconciled to God. Are we preparing for that? And if not, why not? All right. So many other ways I think that we can apply this. It's also recognized under point E, the last thing we glean out of this, the opportunity for entrance is narrow. Once shut, there are no second chances. Once shut, there are no second chances. <laughs> the whole Roman Catholic concept of purgatory. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. And uh, the idea of, of uh, reincarnation, the Hindu approach. Just keep trying and keep trying over and over again until you get it right. It is given unto man once to die. After that, the judgment, the eternal judgment. No second chances. And this is not unusual. Um, in comparable ways, Genesis 7.16, uh, when the door on the ark was shut, that was it. The animals on board were the animals on board. The humans on board were the humans on board. And the animals and the humans and the Nephilim outside, all slated to physical destruction. Luke 13, 25, another concept here connected to this. He says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. 
once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Okay. And this is much earlier in the life of Christ, but it is the similar context to the message of what he's giving here. And I think it's probably a sermon he, he preached many times over and over in the process of his, of his earthly ministry. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. See, one of the differences between hell and the lake of fire is hell is still able to look across and see what it is that they have forsaken. The rich man was able to look across the gulf and see Lazarus and Abraham and the, and the comfort taking place over there. Lake of fire, there's going to be no more, uh, it's, it's total darkness. There's no visibility. They aren't going to be able to look across anything and see heaven. Uh, it's a big difference between hell and the lake of fire. All right, they will come from east and west and from north and south will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, there are the last who will be first and some of the first who will be last. There will be Gentiles reaping this, this millennial blessing even while racially Jewish people are excluded because of their unbelief. Once shut, there are no second chances. Okay, so what's the, uh, in our evangelism ministry, our ministry of reconciliation, then what is the closing of that door? physical death okay as long as they're still alive as long as they're still on this earth even on their deathbed okay but some people don't like that i think there's some prideful christians that have real issues with that right now uh christopher hitchens is uh uh one of the most famous atheists on planet earth and uh he's got cancer and he's talks about facing the specter of death okay and he's not uh, not afraid. He's not certainly not going to turn to religion to kind of soothe his fears. At least so he says. Okay, Are you praying for him? Would it be awesome for have, to have him accept, turn to Christ? Believe it or not, there are Christians that would not like that. See, grumbling, almost like the grumbling at the eleventh hour laborers. You know how dare he? How dare he get paid the same as me? I've been, I've been working all these hours. All right. There are no second chances. Let's move on from here to the parable of the talents. Verses 14 through 30. Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. Now this gets introduced, for it is just like a man about to go on a journey. And it's a very abrupt introduction. It's a very short introduction. It's highly abbreviated. And it's very dependent upon that which preceded it. Otherwise, and in the English, you've got the it is kind of italicized, because it's not in the Greek, for just like a man going on a journey. And uh, to really have a complete thought in this verse, you need to go back to 1 through 13. And I think you really bring in the full uh, verbiage of verse 1. The kingdom of heaven will be comparable to. And uh, in which case, then, this becomes the twelfth of Matthew's comparisons, kingdom of heaven in parabolic simile. It is just like a man about to go on a journey. 
who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. So just so you know, I have settled in my own mind anyway that this is the twelfth of the kingdom of heaven similes. And uh, the parable of the sower is actually metaphor rather than simile. But you can outline it however you want. All right. Parable of the talents. Now, it's going to be similar to the parable of the minus, M-I-N-A-S or minas, uh, which was in the last Judean and Priam ministry, episode number 40, going all the way back to Luke chapter 19. We will look at that here today. We'll look at it again next week. Uh, similar to the parable of the Minas in that parable. Oh, let's read through this, and then we'll go read the other one, and then you should be able to, to spot those differences. There are similarities, but there are distinctions, and I, and I think it's important that we identify both similarities and the distinctions. All right, it's just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To the one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his own ability, or his dunamis, his power. And he went on his journey. Immediately, the one who received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, does this sound familiar? And then you were with us when we taught episode 40 of the Priam ministry. All right. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And the one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. Now these are slaves, not stewards. And the phrase is good and faithful, not uh, faithful and sensible. Okay, and there, I think that's a, a, a distinction that should be noted. Dealt with that a little bit in chapter 24. So well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. So faithful and few qualifies you to be placed in charge of more. When you're faithful in small areas, he can entrust you with larger areas. We understand this happens throughout the process of time. And now evidently, this also has an application on into uh, what we understand to be the kingdom when the master returns. So also the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I've gained two more. The master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Same concept. Now, he has the identical reward in concept, just simply on a proportional basis. He was not entrusted with five. He was entrusted with two. But he had faithfulness like the five guy had. He had, he had faithfulness. He's rewarded for his faithfulness. And he will be entrusted with more. Good and faithful slave, I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. It's not your own joy, it's your master's joy. There's a distinction to be made there. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master. And now he starts his rehearsed speech. Very similar to the other rehearsed speech in Luke 19. I knew you to be a hard man. Scleros. Right? Like arteriosclerosis. we got some nurses here. What's the sclerosis all about? It's the hardening of the arteries, right? Okay. And I think there's other sclerosis as well, but 
medically speaking, but sclerao, I know you to be a sclerao kind of guy. You're a hard man. Reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. Now he's using this kind of in a fearful way. Um, we ought to uh, we ought to consider different things related to this that we might apply as well. Because don't we reap where we didn't sow, and don't we sometimes sow where another's going to reap? If we understand the inner working of the church and the, the inner working of the church body, then we should not be worried about that in any respect. But even in a in a business application where this is clearly in a in a secular financial setting even in this i think we ought to be observant related to some of the grumbling that takes place these first two servants have no issues understanding that the capital that was invested was not their capital to start with it was the it was the the master's capital they were doing the business with it and they're going to be rewarded it's still the master's return his investment Yes, they were the investment brokers, but it's still his funds involved. This third guy really doesn't seem to grasp that concept. He seems to think that the owner is wrong for reaping when he's not the one that did the work. That, you know, why are you reaping? You didn't sow, right? And you think about laborers that believe in the labor theory of value that because they put the work into it that they should be entitled to the increase well wait a minute you put the work into it but the work opportunity was provided for you by this guy the the capital to do the work was provided by this guy the risk was all this guy's if uh, if if the return didn't come you weren't suffering the loss he was suffering the loss the whole idea that well you didn't so why should you reap? Somehow taking custody of the reaping because you were the hired labor? Wait a minute. It actually is a form of theft where uh, the, uh, the thought goes that because you put the labor into it, you're entitled to uh, what you're not entitled to. All right. Anyway, he, uh, he responds. The master answered and said to him, you wicked, lazy slave. Oh, I didn't read verse 25, did I? Um, you're a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. And that's not right. It's, yes, it is his, but it should be more than that. It should be that plus. And because this slave was wicked and lazy, because the slave did not do anything productive with what he was entrusted, he's actually robbed from his master. The master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest at the very least. If you're not going to do anything productive, at least do something uh, on a minimal return basis of, of uh, interest on a savings account. But just burying it? <laughs> All right? Sitting on it? Um, you know, I think 
what, you know, the, the bank, <laughs> that would have involved paperwork. That would involve records. That would have, uh, there would have been witnesses that uh, this is the master's money. Okay, but if he buries it and doesn't tell anybody where it's hidden, and if the, uh, if the master doesn't come back, you know, he's got, he's got some, some thieving options in front of him here, some resources that maybe he can abscond with. All right. And by the way, we don't know if it's a talent of gold, a talent of silver, a talent of bronze. It would make a huge difference. Um, I mean, we're talking significant funds if it's gold, and, and really not even insignificant funds if it's silver. Okay. We don't know the exact um, metal in view here. Uh, we know that it's a talent. All right. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten. This man is not only is he fired, but he will have no future service. He will not be entrusted with anything in the future. And the one that has already demonstrated the greatest uh, capacity for service is going to have that capacity increased. Give it to the one who has ten. Everyone who has, more shall be given. Hmm. Everyone who has, more shall be given. Now this is Jesus Christ and his testimony. This is described as being the reward to the one who had five, the one who had ten, the one who now has eleven, whoever he is. Okay. And this is described as the point of this, of this parable. Everyone who has, more shall be given. You ever wonder why the world seems to hate this? Why is it that cosmos wisdom rejects this? Why is it that this becomes the basis for jealousy? This becomes the basis for class warfare? This becomes the basis for all kinds of mental attitude sins? This becomes the basis for the idiom, the very resentful idiom about the rich get richer? They hate that. Ooh, the rich get richer. And the poor get poorer. And it's somehow the rich's fault that the poor is getting poorer. Everyone who has, more shall be given. Well, why does he have? Because he was good and sensible. Because he achieved what he was designed to achieve. He was busy about his master's business. And he was rewarded for that. The one who does not have. Well, what's he doing? Why is he not buying his oil? Why is he not engaged in, in what he's designed for? Why is he doing his own thing? Even what he does have shall be taken away. He's got no capacity for it. got no enjoyment for it. And, uh, you know, this is why it's so tragic that a large segment of professing Christianity are not disciples. They're not abiding in the Word. They're not bearing fruit. They're not abiding in Christ. They've got a form of godliness while denying His power. And even what they have... It's going to be taken away. You know, after he wipes away all the tears. You know why there's so much crying in heaven? Hmm. Well. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A lot of weeping and gnashing of teeth in these passages. All right. 
Point A. This, pas- this parable is closely linked to the previous passage, indicated by the abbreviated introduction. Indicated by the abbreviated introduction. In fact, it is so abbreviated, it requires the repetition of the first introduction in verse 1. The, uh, the even as, or the just as, needs something ahead of that to complete the... Uh, what is just like, just as, a man about to go on a journey? What? The kingdom of heaven. Okay. The kingdom of heaven. It is just like a man about to go on a journey. So it, it is so abbreviated, it then intimately connects it, more so than, you know, in Matthew 13, you got seven of them, and each one has its own introduction. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to, and there's seven of them throughout that chapter. Here, we have the kingdom of heaven may be compared to with, with virgins, and then a very quick introduction that's so abbreviated, so connected, that... It, it, it really links them together. And I think you want to take virgins and you want to take um, talents and link those two in your thinking for our application. Connect them. And on one, the emphasis is preparation. On the other, the emphasis is production. Right? Preparation, production. Am I preparing for glory? And am I producing fruit in the meantime? Both aspects. Okay, preparation and production. So again, point A, this parable is closely linked to the previous passage indicated by the abbreviated introduction, verse 14 compared to verse 1. And so this could then be thought of as the 12th kingdom of heaven comparison. We gave you the 11 under 1A and described this under 2A. Point B, a man is going to go on a journey a man is going to go on a journey. This is actually, there's more to it than just simply he's traveling. Okay? And in part, we're, uh, we're crippled in our modern mindset because transportation and communication are what they are today. Absolutely unreal. Absolutely unreal. Um, journeying in the ancient world was a significant event and very few people did it. <laughs> Uh, and with the advent of the Roman roads, um, humanity traveled further and communicated better than ever before previously in the history of the world. And even that uh, was still a, uh, a process. We're talking months and years. In a journey of this nature, the verb apodemeo actually speaks of not just a journey, but a far... Um, an emigration condition. Um, apo meaning out of, demos, like democracy. Um, your demos is your, is your people. Okay? Your demos, uh, our demos would be um, America. We're all Americans, right? That's your demos. That's your people. So if, you're a, if you are an American and you're living in Ukraine then you are accomplishing the activity of apodemeo. You are living apart from 
your demos. Okay. That's the idea here. It's a, it's a it's not just a short trip. It is a prolonged uh, journey, traveling and existence apart from your native homeland. And even in this context, we're told that it's a long time before he returns. Um, after a long time, we're told in verse 19, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Now you consider the nature of the stewardship of Israel after they reject their king and when he ascends to sit at his father's throne. How long is it before the king returns? You know, it's been 2,000 years already since the crucifixion or close to it. And uh, if the rapture occurs today and their stewardship is returned to them, um, it's still going to be a period of time before he returns. It's been a long time. Okay, we have other applications of this uh, in Matthew 21 with its parallels in Mark 12 and Luke 20. In Matthew 21, 33, we had this. In uh, the parable of the landowner, I mentioned this a little bit ago. Um, no, I didn't, actually. A landowner who planted a vineyard, put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower, and rented it out to the vine growers and went on a journey. And he was gone a long time. And when the harvest time approached, he himself did not return, but he sent slaves to receive his produce. There ought to be income. It's all his. It's all his. Now he's rented it out. So these renters, these tenant farmers, have uh, agreed to whatever the terms were, whatever their income is, whatever their... Uh, provision is to be tenant uh, vine growers here. But it's not theirs. It's his land. It's his vineyard. It's his wall. It's his wine press. It's his tower. These vine growers simply show up and contract under whatever rental agreement they come to. And he's on a journey. He's abroad, we would say. And so then he sends his slaves. And the vine growers took his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first. They did the same thing to them. But afterward he sent his son to them, saying they will respect my son. And so you think about the prophets, and you think about the, uh, the other group, larger. And then you think about, finally, he sends his son. And they said, this is the heir. Let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What were the scribes and Pharisees thinking they were doing with crucifying the Christ? What did they think they were going to achieve in defiance of Yahweh? They knew this was his son. They knew he was the Christ. No one could do these miracles unless the Father sent him. And they killed him anyway. They were seizing the, the kingdom for themselves. All right. So that's Matthew twenty-one thirty-three. It has its parallel in Mark twelve one and in uh, Luke twenty and verse nine. Matthew twenty-five fourteen and fifteen is our passage of study today. And then the only other place where this term is used is the prodigal son. 
in Luke 15 that he, uh, the younger brother, wanted his share of the estate, and then he proceeded immediately to Apademeo. He proceeded immediately to go to a land that was not of his demos. And so he goes to live among whatever uh, people and uh, that had a, uh, a culture that uh, agreed with his carnality. <laughs> All right? So, uh, you know, and this is what we do. This is what we do. When we're not walking in the light, we find a culture that agrees with our carnality. We find uh, some kind of lifestyle that's compatible with what our sin nature wants to do. And we, we leave where we belong. We leave where we're supposed to be. All right. Now, what are the differences? Let's, uh, let's look at Luke 19. It is similar to the parable of the Manas, the Manah. Let's look at Luke 19, and let's see some differences. A lot of similarities, but some differences. Again, there's going to be three uh, conversations. The third one is the loser. <laughs> okay. His, uh, his weasley, whiny complaining is very similar. Luke 19, 11. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and they, were, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. And he says, no, are you kidding? This is only episode 40 in the last Eugene and Prairie ministry. <laughs> all right. I've got to go through the cross and all this other stuff. All right. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and he gave them ten manah or manahs. And he said to them, do business with this until I come back. And we discussed whether this was ten each or ten total, one apiece for the ten of them. And it doesn't really matter. Either way you take it, I think it was ten servants, ten manahs, they each got one. But it doesn't matter. Even if they each got ten, the point is they each received an identical amount. He didn't give one five, one two, and one one according to their ability. Every slave received an equal amount. And I think it's one because when, he, when the first appears saying, Master, your manah, one, has made ten manahs more. To me, the natural reading of the text means that he gave ten slaves, ten manas, that's one apiece. And they are commanded to do business with this. We're expected to do something after we're saved, before we die. Okay? So that's the difference. And then there's also fellow citizens in this parable. That's not, to be, that's not a feature of the parable we're looking at today. Different from the slaves, citizens. And then there's they send a delegation after him saying we do not want this man to reign over us. And then he returns after receiving the kingdom. Oh, there's so much more. Anyway, your manah has made ten more. He says, well done, good slave. You've been faithful in very little. You are to be in authority over ten cities. Not only is there more business to be engaged in, but there's actually sovereignty over political uh, arrangements. That's different than what we see in, uh, in uh, 
Matthew 25. The second master said, your manah has made five. He had a five-fold return. And you get over five cities. Another said, uh, Master, here's your mana, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you. You're an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down. You reap what you did not sow. By your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you not know I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. So, a lot of similarities. Even some of the rebuke and some of the, the weasel complaining and all of this is very, very identical, which causes some folks to say, well, it was the same episode and uh, Luke was just confused over when it was delivered or Matthew was confused over when it was delivered or so forth. We don't go there. He probably taught this message a dozen times or more. All right. Well, next week we'll come back to this and we'll describe what the distinctions are between Every believer receiving an identical trust and every believer receiving a different trust based upon ability. And, and both are true in the Christian way of life. We'll discuss how both are true in the Christian way of life. And uh, we'll bring this together and then we'll do uh, sheep and goats. Sheep and goats next week. Lord willing and rapture pending, of course. Father, thank you for your truth. Thy word is truth. Thank you for this opportunity we have. It is an opportunity that will not come again. And, uh, and I thank you for believers that have redeemed this opportunity. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.